Hello, my name is Marie Lundberg, and I would like to welcome you all to Season 3 of Captivated Audience, a podcast I host with my friend and professional colleague, Sam Sheen. Hi, Sam. Hey, Marie. Greetings from the Sunny Channel Islands. Can you believe it is almost one year to the day that we launched this podcast? Oh, my. Sam, well, that puts things into perspective, doesn't it? And I would say, you know, the fight against financial crime goes on. Our regulators here in Europe and across the world have been quite busy, I would say. Last year in 2020, we saw papers and guidance issued by the FADAF and national regulators on the use of technology and the financial crime risk that was occurring during the pandemic. And we also saw a number of consultations and new AML laws being developed, such as the ones in the United States, for example. Sam, can you tell us what has been happening here in the EU? I have this analogy where I say, where it rains, it pours. And in 2020, we had a few indications from the regulatory community. We'd be looking forward to some guidance, some trend information, some help offered to the financial institutions on how to work through these challenging times, but also looking into the future on the use of technology and you know, what the 5AMLD was going to mean operationally. And um, it looks like there is a monsoon coming our way, doesn't it? I agree. First, we start off with the EBA coming up with the new risk factor guidelines. Uh, just a few days later, they published their opinion. And, and now just FADAF issued their revised uh, recommendation for supervisors as well. So yeah, I think it's, uh, it's going to be a lot of reading. It, it is. And you know, we know how busy everybody is. So we're going to help folks out. And for the next series of podcasts, we are going to provide you with a verbal summary of some of the highlights of each of these documents, along with some other developments going on in the field of financial crime. So hopefully this should help you ease the burden of familiarizing yourselves, but also considering what that's going to mean for you if you've just been in the process of trying to operationalize those transposed requirements here in Europe. So why don't we kick things off, Marie? And let's just talk about this opinion, which comes with a delightfully short title, which is the Opinion of the European Banking Authority on the risks of money laundering and terrorist financing affecting the European Union's financial sector. Whew, let's just call that the opinion, shall we, Marie? Yeah, let's do that. Quickly, quickly, for those of you who don't know what this opinion is, and it is a common legislative tool here in Europe to have the body known as the European Banking Authority or the EBA issue opinions. These are documents which regulators will refer to or have regard to when they decide how they're going to go about regulating something. So this particular opinion is a requirement under the fourth anti-money laundering directive. So way back in 2015, this requirement required the EBA to issue this opinion on the risks of money laundering and terrorist financing as it affects the European Union's financial sector. And they're supposed to do this every two years. So the last one was published in 2019. In terms of the opinions, the European Banking Authority has done something really cool. So first in 2019, they issued a funky interactive bar chart diagram that if you're not into the words, you can actually see the illustrative changes in stats as regards to what they considered to be inherent risks, and then following the application of perceived regulatory controls, where the residual risks sit with the particular areas they assessed. So they've done that again for this 2021 opinion. It's really interesting because the assessment itself looks very typical to like all good business risk assessments. In other words, you know, it's got inherent risk, Marie, it's got controls, and then it's got your arriving at kind of residual risk rating. 
and we do love charts, graphs and data, that's for sure. Thing is here though, Sam, when we compare the one from 2019 to the one 2021, even factoring in the pandemic, it looks like the financial institutions are still facing issues with transaction monitoring and terrorism financing. The risks associated with sectors such as fintech and regtech are still there. I wonder, is the EBA combing the fringes of the carpet in this case, trying to make it look all nice? But let's talk about the cross-sectorial risks identified. These are the risks that are common across the different sectors that must comply with the AML CTF regulatory requirements. And the sectors are then the different kind of credit institutions, investment firms, fund managers, and e-money institutions and virtual currencies. So let's talk about those because Sam, I need you to help me put this into practical terms. Based on their assessment of the changes primarily that have happened both in relation to what's happened with these sectors. Have they grown? Have they expanded? What's happened with their products and services? And the perception of the national regulators. Um, There's basically been moderate changes to the understood inherent risk profiles for these particular, what they call cross-sectoral concerns. So this is regtech, terrorist financing, fintechs, and virtual currencies. That seems slightly surprising, given what we've noticed has been, you know, on a commercial sense, particularly in the last year, some pretty big developments for online businesses themselves. Two types of firms, if you like, had notable reductions in the perceived inherent risk. And surprisingly, they were payment institutions and foreign exchange businesses. But in terms of residual risk overall, just as you said, Marie, there was really no noticeable change across all of the different sectors. And it was fund managers and fund administrators, which were seen as having an increase in the overall residual risk they posed in the EU. But if you're wondering how the EBA actually did this risk assessment, keeping in mind what you're expected to do with your firm, have a look at paragraphs four onward in the content itself. And Maria, it talks about taking a questionnaire, sending it out to all the regulators. Um, Apparently 52 regulators gave input for this particular assessment. Then they did data and analytics by using a combination of software in regards to quantitative data. Then they did some cleanup of the data, apparently, you know, and then they continue on to sort of talk about this. And then they refer to relying on subject specific expert reports. They don't particularly list them, but they do say they went back and looked at some of their calls for input, particularly around the topic of de-risking, which we'll be talking about in our second podcast. It's probably one of the few times I've seen a little bit more detail about the actual data analytics involved and talking about purging duplicate data, anomalous data. I mean, have you seen this before? No, not really. I do like the progress here, though, on using data and analytics as part of it. Still, I wonder about the methodology. There is something odd about it. Maybe I'm off base here, but what's your take, Sam? I think you're right. Do you remember when we spoke to uh, Mr. Wagner up in Austria and he was talking about the committee that was looking Mm. at uh, the EIDAS program and could it be updated in a way that it could be used by the private sector for KYC purposes? And he talked about this working group, but he said there weren't any reg techs on the committee, which is really odd, right? So why wouldn't you actually have the providers there on this committee? Well, here too, something odd happened. So the regulations under which the EBA has to conduct this assessment includes requiring where appropriate open public consultations along with a cost benefit analysis and advice from the banking stakeholder group. Okay, so that's supposed to be a part of the process. 
However, in this case, the EBA decided not to undertake any consultation with the private sector. And they claim the reason why they decided not to do this is because the opinion was not changing or specifying policies that the regulators in the member states would need to follow, but instead just sets out good practices and reiterates supervisory duties. It also oddly says that because it spoke to competent authorities, in other words, regulators, in undertaking this review, any recommendations it would have made as to how regulators should be regulating under their AML regs, really didn't need to be canvassed with a broader stakeholder population through an open consultation. Sam, I need to stop you there because, I mean, isn't, isn't that like contradictory to what it should be? Well, when you think about the way in which firms are encouraged to do their business risk assessments, one of the things they talk about is actually bringing in the stakeholders across the business because the perception of risk can be fundamentally different, right? You don't want it just yeah. driven by your compliance staff. So it's really You need odd. to include a business in this case, right? Well, And especially if you're going to do a cost-benefit analysis, how do you do it without actually having the firms involved to say how much it would cost to operationalize? So I think it's odd sort of development. It may have been that they were put under pressure time-wise to get this done, but I do think, for what it's worth, the document is an important signaling document because it does give firms an idea as to how member state regulators might approach their supervision based on the expectations or good practices summarized in this document. And that's especially in terms of what they can expect when their regulators start resuming thematic reviews, on-site visits, and perhaps the sort of things they are saying they're expecting firms to basically reflect under the AML program. So, you know, I'm going to go glass half full and say, a bit odd, private sector wasn't involved, but it shouldn't be dismissed outright. There is some benefit in really carefully reading this document. So moving on to the more complex stuff, virtual currencies, crypto, and the virtual asset service providers or WASPs, what is being said about them in the opinion? It's kind of interesting to know, since you said, Sam, if the regulators are to use this information in the supervisory work. For sure. Well, a number of the regulators apparently reported to the EBA that the financial crime risks of arising from this particular sector had increased over the last two years, and they've attributed that risk and inherent risk in part with the, both the growth of the market. Um, and that growth is both in relation to the spectrum of customers who are involved now and the volume of transactions. The main factors contributing to the increased risk were the limited transparency of virtual currency transactions and the identities of the individuals involved in these transactions. And let me just say, Marie, I'm sure if we had Malcolm Wright on here or we had Jesse Spiro on here, they'd be putting their hand in the air pretty quickly to challenge that notion. But in any event, it turns out that credit institutions, investment firms, electronic money issuers, and payment institutions were reported to be the sectors most exposed to these risks. Added to that, they said there were still virtual currency-related activities that continue to fall outside of the fifth anti-money laundering directive requirements. That meant that supervisors were also not keeping up with all the developments in the sector to properly regulate it in full. What do you think of that, Marie? That's a great question, Sam. I am somewhat sitting on the fence here. There are WASPs and virtual currency companies out there bending over backwards to follow the regulatory requirements due to the higher risks. Thing is, if these companies are not allowed to bank within the financial sector, what happens then? I'm not sure if the risking is the intent from the EBA here. So tell us, Sam, what does the opinion then propose as a good way or method to address and to assess, of course, the financial crime risks here? 
Well, like all good business risk assessments, the evaluation is based on, well, what would be an effective control framework to bring down that inherent level of risk to something manageable at a residual level? And let me just say, Marie, just as an aside, how good would it have been if we actually had transposed here what the actual risk appetite was of the EBA or the EU more generally, just to understand what it is we're trying to bring these these levels of inherent risk down to? But in any event, their response in relation to virtual currencies was basically this. Recommendations and regulations are currently in train to address these risks. And they cite a number of different documentation and consultations that were underway 2019, 2020, and are still in train. So these include a consistent authorization regime for VC businesses and also proposing a mandatory register for all virtual asset service providers. It was also noted that the EU's proposals to strengthen the financial crime prevention framework also includes the proposal to align the five AMLD with the activities that are proposed to be covered under a document known as the Regulation on Markets in Crypto Assets. The final recommendation made by the EBA around virtual currencies is that regulators should closely monitor the regulatory developments I just mentioned And they should have the power to oversee custodian wallet providers and those involved in the conversion of fiat and virtual currencies. So in other words, exchanges. They also recommended that regulators perform sectoral assessments in each of their member states in relation to their exposure to VCs and promote risk awareness and guidance for the firms I mentioned earlier who they think are more exposed. So the firms I mentioned about credit institutions, payment institutions, and so forth. They've also recommended that regulators consider whether the firms they regulate could be exposed to financial crime risk around virtual currencies because they accept those businesses as customers and to raise awareness around this. So not so bad on the recommendation front, heavy lift on the part of the regulators. But I do see your point, Marie, here, which is there is a real risk around de-risking here. And I'm not sure if you remember this, but I went to an event in 2016 and I remember there was a fintech on stage next to a bank. And they were talking about trying to get a bank account. And that fintech got extremely upset because the bank claimed it was very receptive to emerging technology-focused businesses. And the fintech pointed out that because they had technology in their name, they immediately noticed any account they tried to open was closed shortly thereafter. And that the only way they were able to open a bank account was if they agreed to be audited every six months for financial crime risk purposes and to produce that audit to the bank, making holding a bank account with that bank just completely costly. You know, what, what do you think? Do you see a similar risk here with the recommendations? Again, good question, Sam. Well, yes, in uh, my opinion, there is a risk that this way of thinking might bleed into other sectors too, which surely cannot be the intent, right? On another note, I'm thinking about the kind of training and skill sets needed in order to supervise this complex area. Yeah, and you and I have done work with VASPs in the past, and what we certainly know is they're really focusing on the travel rule at the moment. They do, yeah. And there's no mention of it here. And equally... We'll be talking about the risk factor guidelines in another podcast. There's nothing about virtual currency providers in there either, is there? Not to my knowledge, no. My last two cents is, without giving further clarity to the regulators on what's expected in this field, I do have a real concern that the unintended consequence will be member state regulators will do the best that they can, but there will definitely be a divergence in their approach, both to assessing the suitability of the controls that BASPs may use, 
but also in terms of where they should be focusing their risk mitigation efforts. And on that note, I would like to say thank you for listening in on part one of our four-part series on the EBA opinion. Please join us for part two, where we will be reviewing fintechs and how risky they are assessed to be for financial crime and whether financial institutions have improved in terms of their efforts to detect and prevent terrorist financing. Thank you and stay safe.